Good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here today. We're always grateful for the opportunity to be together. We've got a number of visitors with us. As always, we are so glad that you're with us. We want you to know that we count you as an honored guest. We'd love to have you come back. We've had a number of folks that have placed membership with us. And as always, we invite you, if you're looking for a church home, to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and join hands with us. We're very grateful for our elders, our deacons, for every member. We've got a great group of folks, and we'd love to have you as a part of our family. We're going to be talking today about remembering the cross of Christ. Our lesson text will be based on Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 27, several verses in that chapter, as we think about this theme. I think it's important for us to reflect often on the death of Jesus. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we talk about the death of Christ. We reflect upon the death of Christ and it might be the case that it becomes somewhat common to us. In other words, it loses its luster. We fail to appreciate its meaning. Many of us enjoy watching television, and there are some old television programs from days gone by that no doubt many of us enjoy watching, and we watch, we laugh, we reminisce. But you know, you can watch a program over and over, and after a while, it becomes tiresome. I would hope and pray that as we read the scriptures, particularly as we reflect upon the death of Christ, that it does not become stale common, tiresome to us. And so today I want you to think with me about what Matthew records concerning the cross of Jesus. I want to begin by talking about the cruelty of the cross and the fact that the cruelty of the cross should always be remembered. We ought to remember exactly what Jesus experienced on our behalf. I would begin by emphasizing the baseless cruelty of the people. In Matthew chapter 27, the account is given of Jesus not only being betrayed by one of his own, Judas Iscariot, but being examined by Pontius Pilate. It's interesting to me that as you begin to observe the gospel narratives of the death of Jesus, there was absolutely nothing that Jesus had done to warrant, first of all, a trial. Secondly, he had done nothing to warrant being crucified. And so all of the charges were simply trumped up. They were baseless. Pontius Pilate, according to John in John chapter 19, verses 4 and 6, stated at least two times, I find no fault in this man. His own wife said in verse 19, have nothing to do with that just man. Now think about that. Pilate said, I found nothing in him that would lead me to think he was guilty. His own wife said that He was a just man. In verse 24, 
Pilate is recorded as saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. I think that's very significant. Pontius Pilate knew exactly the innocence of Jesus Christ, didn't he? He just lacked the boldness to release him. So, all of the charges trumped up. Jesus was an innocent man, dying or ultimately going to die on Calvary. And then I think about the barbaric cruelty of the people. Note, if you would, what is said beginning in verse 28. There are, th there are things that are said by Matthew documenting for us the barbaric cruelty of the people in the first century. First of all, the text says they scourged him. Had you and I been a witness, an eyewitness to the scourging of Jesus, it would have left us in shambles. To have seen somebody literally being beaten, as we would say, to a pulp. Matthew said that Pilate released Barabbas to the people, and when he had scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And then verse 28 says, not only did they scourge him, but they stripped him. And they put a scarlet robe on him. And then in verse 29, they began to sneer at him. They twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They didn't really think he was the King of the Jews. This was done in a sneering, mocking manner. And then in verse 30, the Bible says, They spat on him. Can you imagine the audacity of people spitting on the very one that created them? And then the text tells us that they took the reed and struck him on the head. So the Bible tells us they scourged him, they stripped him, they sneered at him, they spat on him, and they struck him. And then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. The brutality of these people. Everything that they did, absolutely unwarranted. But they did it anyway. Think about the brutal and inhumane treatment of the people as they crucify him. First, I think about the one who carried the cross to Golgotha, to Calvary's hill. They went outside the walls of Jerusalem to crucify the Son of God. And so they found a man of serene, Simon by name, and the Bible says him they compelled to bear his cross. Now you think about Jesus. He's been weakened to a great extent, having been scourged. He's tired. He's weary. Every ounce of energy exerted by the Son of God on the road to Calvary or Golgotha was expended for us. Every single drop of blood 
that hit the ground was shed for us. When I think about Jesus making his way out to Calvary and the fact that he fell beneath the weight of the cross, that he wasn't physically strong enough to bear that cross because of the way the people had treated him. And so first there is the one who bore that cross and then there is the one who bore our cross. Jesus is the one who bore our cross. Because in verse 33 it says, when they had come to a place called Golgotha, Luke said when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. They divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, going all the way back to Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then note, if you would, verse 38. Jesus, of course, crucified between two thieves, two malefactors. The text says the two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right, another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine these people questioning the sonship of Jesus? If you're the Son of God, was He the Son of God? Absolutely. And then they said, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross, questioning His sovereignty. Did Jesus have the power to come down from the cross? We know that answer. Verse 41, Likewise the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save if he is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he'll have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then in verse 44 the Bible says, Even the robbers who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. So here is Jesus surrounded by a group of people who are angry, they're hateful, they're mocking and sneering at him. And so I think about the cruelty of the cross and then there's a second thing that comes to mind, and that is the cries from the cross. And those cries should never be forgotten. When you begin to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are at least seven very specific things that Jesus utters while hanging on the cross. Luke tells us that he begins by speaking words of forgiveness, the cry of forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I don't think they had any idea what they were doing. 
They obviously didn't believe in the Son of God, and yet every single sign, every single miracle that Jesus did authenticated His claims. There was the message that was incomparable. Peter himself said, Lord, you have the words of life eternal. Every single statement that was made by the Son of God ought to have led people to believe that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah, the Anointed One. So here is the Creator speaking words of forgiveness for His own creation. They had no idea what they were doing. So even in death, Jesus is viewed as thinking about the spiritual needs of others. And then there's the cry of being forsaken. Is there anything worse than being forsaken? Can you think of anything that would even rival your friends, your family members, the people that you call your allies, your trusted ones, turning their back on you. The Bible tells us in verse 46, well, in verse 45, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. From 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the afternoon, absolute darkness. The Son of God is writhing in pain on the cross. The difficulty that he, along with those two thieves, would have had breathing. The enormity of the pain, the searing pain that he would be experiencing. And then that pain would no doubt not even come close to the pain of Reflected in verse 46. When Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have to understand that Jesus is the Word who became flesh. That is, Jesus has always existed. John said in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Jesus is an eternal being. He has always been. He will always be. He has always existed with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And they had never been separated. And yet, Jesus bore our sins, didn't he? And so because of that, the Lord Jesus could cry out to God the Father, and say, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was bearing our sins. I mentioned a moment ago, the man who bore the cross to Calvary and the man who bore our cross on Calvary. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Peter would say one chapter earlier, in chapter 2, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross, being put to death in the flesh. So here is the Son of God on the cross of Calvary, 
He speaks words of forgiveness. He speaks words of being forsaken. And then he speaks or cries of being finished. Finished with his work. Note, if you would, what is said. After having cried out to God the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood, when they heard it, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. John says in chapter 19 and about verse 30 that Jesus cried from the cross, It is finished. God's redemptive plan had been fulfilled, hadn't it? Do you remember in the shadow of the cross in John chapter 17 verse 4? Jesus said, I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work that you have given me to do. Earlier in his ministry he had talked about how he had come down from heaven. Not to do his own will, but the will of the Father who had sent him. The Lord Jesus had a very specific purpose in coming to planet earth. He said the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. So here's the Son of God dying on Calvary. Dying for our sins. So then thirdly, we're confronted with the cause of the cross. And that cause shouldn't, should always be remembered, never be forgotten. Beginning in verse 51, as we think about the cause, first, there were a couple of signs that occurred following the death of Jesus. In verse 51, Matthew speaks of the temple. He said, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn or rent in two from top to bottom. That veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. When Jesus died, that middle wall of partition that separated Jew and Gentile was broken down once for all. God would ultimately house both Jew and Gentile in the one body of the church, according to Ephesians 2, verse 16, where Paul said, that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body under the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So first, the temple. The veil of the temple is rent or split, torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. You think about these events as they are occurring. And then in verse 52, Matthew speaks of the tombs. The graves were opened. And many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Nothing is said about who these saints were. Nothing is said about what they said. It's just a sign that occurred following the death of Jesus. And no doubt what a tremendous impression it made on these people. Now, I think about the signs that occurred following the death of Jesus, and then there is a statement that was made 
following the death of Jesus. And we talk about the cause of his death. Note, if you would, verse 54. When the centurion, that is, here is this Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, who has observed these events as they're transpiring. And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. And know what Matthew says. They feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Let me just pause there. The Roman centurion, out of all of those people, and you think about all of the Jews that are present, you think about those that were intent on destroying the very Son of God, and here is this Roman centurion, a pagan man, and he gets it right. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, what's the significance of that to us? Well, we talk about the cause of the cross and the fact that it ought to always be remembered. It should never be forgotten. The fact of the matter is, Jesus died for us. Now, if you back up and you look at verse 22, as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, You recall he asked a question. What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That's the question of the hour. That's the question that every man, woman, and child has to answer. What are you going to do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Now when you look at what they said, it's frightening. Because they said, let him be crucified. My question is, what do you say? What do you say about Jesus who is called the Christ? Did you know that first and foremost, that is a personal question? You have to answer that personally. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Doesn't matter if you're young or old. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter. You have to answer that question. What do you think about Jesus who's called the Christ? Not only is it a personal question, it's a powerful question. Because you see, there are questions that come to us from every front of life. Many of us are asked questions on a regular basis, and some of those questions we can shrug off. Sometimes we don't even have to, we don't even have to address them or answer them. We have to answer this question. To refuse to answer this question is to answer this question with a no. So again, I ask you, what are you going to do with Jesus who's called the Christ? This past week, two people have obeyed the gospel and become New Testament Christians. I would hope and pray that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that you would recognize that Jesus died for you. And I would hope and pray that you would want to go to heaven above everything. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you want to become a New Testament Christian, here's what you need to do. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That He is exactly who He claimed to be. Because He said, except you believe that I am He, you'll die in your sins, John 8, 24. And then you need to repent as they did on Pentecost Day when Peter said, repent. He didn't didn't pause there, didn't stop there. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, 
in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. So, if you believe the gospel, you believe Christ, you would be willing to repent of your sins, confess His name before others, and be immersed in water, all of your sins will be washed away. And God led you to the church. And if you're in the church, you're among the redeemed, the cleansed, the saved, because the Bible says that Jesus is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23. It might be that you're here today and you're a member of the body of Christ, but you're not what you ought to be. Your life is far from what it ought to be in the eyes of God. You need to understand God wants you back. Not only does God want you back, but God will take you back. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. Now, I say all of that to simply conclude with this thought. Sometimes we read the scriptures and we read the crucifixion account. And it may be the case that we've read it over and over and over again and maybe for whatever reason it's lost its luster. I hope that's not the case. If that's the case, then I would hope that 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 fire, that flame from within would reignite. And that we would always remember what the Lord did for us. In just a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song. I want you to know that that song is being sung to encourage you to think about what you're going to do with Jesus. Because in a few minutes, this service will be over. And you will have decided what you will do with Jesus. You'll either say yes or you'll say no. I hope you'll say yes as we stand and sing.